it revolutionized the world because it put the Word of God into the hands of the common man where he could see it and read it for mm-hmm. himself and then compare it with what he's been told by his hierarchy and know that it's different. It opened the door. Hi, I'm Brenna Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript. Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Today, we have the privilege of hanging out with Pastor Greg Axe of Crest Bible Church and the professor of church history here at LFBI. And we've been doing these episodes for quite some time on church history. It's been a little while, but uh, but we've been steadily working our way through the history of the church, just sitting down and, and talking about different topics. And the last time we were together, we talked about the characters of the Reformation. We talked about John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss. We talked about Martin Luther, and we discussed their lives and how they impacted Europe uh, in terms of putting the word of God back into the hands of common people and, and, and how God used these men very mightily. Now, they're names that we're very familiar with. And, and in terms of the Protestant Reformation, they played a huge role and we're thankful for them. But there are others in the narrative of the Reformation, sometimes referred to as the Radical Reformation, that we often don't talk about, that we don't bring up. And, and one of those names is the Anabaptists. Um, and they represent kind of an underground church of Bible believers that were practicing and teaching the Bible and pushing back against the authoritarianism of the Catholic Church long before uh, we heard the names like Martin Luther and, and before we knew of men like that. In many ways, they're the predecessors of the Reformation. And so we want to learn a little bit more about this movement. And for that very purpose, we have Greg Axe here today. It's always good, always fun to be here for these episodes, just going back through history and trying mm-hmm. to make sense of it, out of it and trying to put it in context where we can identify with things that happened a long time ago. Because the average person looks at what happened 500 years ago and goes, I don't care. Right. Um, but it does impact our life. It is significant. It, we are a product of what has happened before us, uh, and we will be... You know, we take the baton and pass it to the next group. Yeah. So so it's important for us to know what happened a long time ago and how that impacts our life today. Yeah. And so hopefully it'll encourage our faith just to be listening and paying attention to, especially the Anabaptists, which we have a lot to learn from and in many ways are yeah. connected to us. Yeah. And so just by way of recap, since it's been a little while since you've been on the show, mm-hmm. let's go back and talk about the Reformation a little okay. bit. Can you, can you right. reintroduce us to the Reformation, when it was, what it was, and how it changed, especially Europe, um, for the, the better and maybe even for the worse in some ways? So right. explain, explain the Reformation to us. In a nutshell, Catholic Church owned the world for a thousand years, mm-hmm. from the time of Constantine to about 1500 or so. And they had everything was on lockdown. Everything was controlled completely by the Roman Catholic Church. And everything was, it was their kingdom that they ran for basically a thousand years. At some point in time, that wore out in the people's mind. And it's like, the abuses finally got caught up with them. And you get guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and mm-hmm. Wycliffe and other people like that. They're saying, no, we've got to get the word of God into the hands of the people. And it's the common ordinary man that has the uh, the relation, can have a relationship with God. Right. So these guys just stood up to it and finally uh, broke, if you will, broke the back of Rome by getting the Word of God into the hands of the people. John Wycliffe began it by translating the New Testament. That was in the 1300s before the printing press. 
And he was able to get copies of the Word of God into people's hands, and they started seeing what was in the Bible and comparing that with what they've been told for a thousand years by the hierarchy in Rome, and are going, wait a minute, this doesn't match, mm-hmm. all right? And and then and then we had one of the most amazing, probably the most significant technological development in the history of humanity, even more so than the internet and AI and all that mm-hmm. stuff that's going on today, and that's the printing press, yeah. 1450 or roughly thereabout, uh, where now you can mass produce the Bible and get it into people's hands, Okay. Well, that's middle 1400s. Martin Luther comes along in 1517 with his thesis, and that just kind of, it revolutionized the world because it put the Word of God into the hands of the common man where he could see it and read it for Mm -hmm. himself and compare it with what he's been told by his hierarchy and know that it's different. And and that was a game changer. Yeah, and it began to change the way that people worshiped. I mean, it did away with the superstition of the church. Yep. It did away with some of the misnomers within the traditions of the Catholic Church. Right. Um, you know, the, the false stories and myth- the mythology that kind of surrounded uh, the, ca- the Catholic Church and, mm-hmm. and, and the agendas that they were pushing. People could begin to sift through that and see through it and make decisions about their faith on their own, independent of the priest's class. Right. Right. And that was the key. And that that broke the back of Rome. And that's where these guys came from. It opened the door. Now, these guys you referred to, like the Anabaptists, who I'm sure we'll get into this more, were always there. Mm -hmm. But they've been underground for all this period of time. And now the door gets open. Rome gets so tied up dealing with Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and, and all those other guys that they they lose sight of the little independent groups that are out there and they begin to flourish as a result mm-hmm. because yeah. they're not under as much lockdown anymore because they're so because Rome is so occupied now with Martin Luther. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's important as we get into this episode to maybe set the stage mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, our own understanding and, and the differences between um, the historic Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but also um, the Catholic movement, the Catholic ideology and then the historic Protestant church and the Protestant ideology and and really how that's even evolved throughout time. So could you could you explain to us the difference between Protestantism mm-hmm. and and Catholicism but then show us how over time that these these that these entities have changed or affected the way that we see our historic faith. So people will ask you the question, are you Calvinist or Armenian? Right. Like a binary. As if those are the only two options. Mm -hmm. They'll ask you the question, are you Catholic or Protestant? As if those are the only two options. Mm -hmm. To backtrack just for a minute, when you're sitting down talking with, say, a married couple that's having conflict or problems, Mm -hmm. you get this he said, she said stuff, right? Right. So you'll talk to him, and he'll give you one side of the story. You'll talk to her, she'll give you another side of the story. And, And people always say, well, there's two sides to every story. I beg to differ. There's three sides to every story. There's his side, there's her side, and then there's the truth. Right. So the same thing is true of this particular argument between Catholicism and Protestantism. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Well, the answer is none of the above because there's always the third option. Mm -hmm. And the Protestant movement basically, if you wanted to sum it up, the Catholic Church has dominated the world for a thousand years and— We have been told, not we, but they have all been told for a thousand years that this is the church that Jesus founded, and it is the only church and the only institution that is Christian, Mm -hmm. okay? 
So you got all these splinter groups running around and stuff like that. There are heretics. There are sects. There are. Yeah. Um, they're not to be right. worried about because they're just little guys. And then here comes another movement that comes in, and what they're trying to do is take Catholicism and clean it up. Yeah. And that's, if you want to look at Catholic versus Protestant, that's the best way to look at it. Here's the Catholic institution for a thousand years has been presented as the only Christian church. Mm -hmm. Well, it's corrupt. And so the Protestants come along and they say, well, we want to clean up the corrupt system. It's still corrupt. Right. So, yeah, you can do it better. But it's still going to be wrong. Well, and, and a great example of this is when John Calvin was brought into Geneva mm -hmm. with all of his ideology and his reformed ideas, mm -hmm. you know, and they're taking these they're taking these biblical ideas and they're trying to infuse them as best they know how. So mm -hmm. like we can give them the benefit of the doubt. Sure. The reformers are, are definitely um, desirous to obey the Lord and to obey scripture. Yes. But they find themselves using the old models of the Catholic Church to reinforce their new uh, doctrinal ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they, they're setting up their own governmental bodies in their own cities with their own form of papacy. And so Calvin ended up being almost a papal authority over over Geneva. Yeah. How is that any different? It's just... It's just a, a revision to the old story in many yep. in many ways, and that's why Calvin was titled the Protestant Pope mm -hmm. because he implemented a lot of the same things, and Martin Luther did as well. Church, state, government systems, mm -hmm. some of the same practices, some of the same doctrines, and so now you have John Calvin executing people for disagreeing with him. Granted, quite a few less than the Catholic Church. Catholic Church did millions, and John Calvin did fifty-eight. Right. I mean, you know, right. the numbers are are skewed. But it, the spirit of the thing is still yeah, there. If you're executing people because they disagree with you, there is something fundamentally wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. So people understand, you know, as Protestantism did evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have. Um, Methodists and we mm -hmm. have Lutherans and we have uh, Presbyterians and you know uh, Episcopalians and all right. these are groups that kind of have grown over time mm -hmm. um, uh, through this this form of, of Protestantism that, that took shape. All of them holding slightly different ideas, but in what ways? Maybe you can explain today when we look at these different churches. What are some of the things that they held on to over time that still look? Um, Catholic that still look liturgical in that way. Well, there. If you go to the typical Lutheran church, you're going to see Catholic light. Um, it's basically the same order of service. Basically, you'll have communion every week. You'll have a priest behind the mm -hmm. the, the rail with his garments on and all that kind of stuff. They might do a little bit extra with the Bible or whatever, but not not a whole lot. Infant baptism is still. Uh, there, some of the doctrines of election and that Calvin had are still within all of those kind of mm -hmm. things. A formalistic, ritualistic, ceremonial uh, church service is conducted where the people are sitting there. There's no Bible exposition. Uh, the people don't need to bring a Bible to church. That kind of stuff is inbred in a lot of the mainline Protestant yeah. movements today. And that's why, again, the Reformers were good guys, and they broke from the church, and they stood up to the abuses, and, 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 and then they tried to clean it up and do it better. And that's why the thing turned around this way and eventually came right back in to where you look at the mainline Protestant denominations today, and they're just as Catholic as the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. 
today we're going to be talking specifically about one of these groups mm -hmm. that kind of circumvented all of that. In right. fact, we would we would call these people our kin, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and maybe we don't agree on e in every way, but um, in in many ways, um, at least culturally and in terms of heritage, we would say this is kind of where our form of of Baptist yes. kind of came from. Yes. And so um, that's that's really the, the the Anabaptists. How did they get that name? First of all, okay. Um, which came, I think, later. Mm -hmm. But but where did they come from, and what were some of the things that they were connected to? How do you know that this group of people um, were part of predecessors of the Reformation, not not contemporaries? Because you can trace their core fundamental beliefs black, back through the Waldensians and Albigensian and Huguenots mm -hmm. and all these groups that go back all the way to the time of Constantine, mm -hmm. even before then. Uh, so you see the same basic core fundamental positions and beliefs in in all those groups as you see them in history. So Martin Luther comes along and seen around 1517 with his 95 thesis. Um, the next few years are tied up. Uh, next several years are tied up mm -hmm. with those two guys dealing with it. And around 1530-ish or so, here comes this group of, of formal, what they call Anabaptists at this particular point in time, um, who took the concept of independent local churches to its correct level and not just reform the Catholic Church, but put it over here, mm -hmm. and this is what the Bible says, we're going to follow the Word of God. So where were these guys based? They where were based they, where in they Switzerland, um, and at the, in the same place where John Calvin and uh, Huldrych Zwingli were, who had set up their perfect Christian, perfect mm -hmm. Christian society where they're killing people who disagree with them. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, but that was in Zurich, in, in Zurich uh, Switzerland primarily, where there was this massive liberty uh, uh, from the Catholic Church because of what the Protestants were doing. Mm -hmm. In fact, they had passed laws in Zurich that outlawed the Mass. If anybody went to the Mass for the third time, they could be executed for mm. that. That was that strict. Okay, so this gave a little bit of an opening and, and liberty to these guys. So these are guys who believe the Bible and said, I appreciate what you're doing for us, Calvin and Zwingli and Luther, but this isn't the whole story. And right. the whole story is here. And so you got these, there were basically five guys that started this particular movement that was titled the Anabaptists. They actually got their name from their enemies. Mm -hmm. Anabaptist is the A-N-A -A on the beginning means another, or in addition to, or again. It was like a slur. Oh, you're baptizing people again. We baptized these kids when they were babies and put them into the church that way against their will. I got baptized when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it. And so as I grow up, and I see what the Bible says, and I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I want to evidence that by the first act of obedience, which is picturing what Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary, the old man buried the man, new man, raised to walk in newness of life, which is what baptism is. The figure, the picture doesn't do anything for you. Mm -hmm. It is the picture of what, what Christ did for us on the cross. They were baptizing those who professed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And this became a problem because oh, they yeah. were rebaptizing people that the Catholic Church had already and baptized. And the Protestants were had already baptized. Right. And so the Protestants and the Catholics are looking at them going, what was wrong with the baptism we gave them? Right. Are you telling us that our baptism was wrong? Uh, 
Uh, yes. <laughs> can, can you tell us the story behind that? Because I think the story is fascinating. There's a r- real contention rising up wherever these Anabaptists go, mm-hmm. and there's some there's some ringleaders here that are involved that 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 choose to actually publicly uh, be rebaptized. Yes. And it, and it kind of it's the game changer where the oppression begins mm-hmm. to take place, and, yes. and then they became come known at that point as the Anabaptists. Yeah. So the, if you wanted to trace the first quote Baptist church in history, it would be around 1535 or so in in Switzerland. Um, um, five guys, Baltasar Hubemeyer, who knows those names, George Blaurock, mm-hmm. Felix Maines, Conrad Grable, and uh, Wilhelm Rubley. We don't know those names. Yeah, those aren't familiar names in church history. Not at all. Yeah. Okay. And nobody needs to really, mm-hmm. I, I'm the nerd who knows those names. Right. Okay. We know Martin Luther. These are the guys behind the scenes, and these five guys got together and and chartered a church in Switzerland, in Geneva, to say, we're going to baptize only professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to teach the Bible the way that we see it. Uh, The Bible is going to be our authority and not some man-made structure. And in doing so, they raised the ire of the Protestants and the Catholics both. Mm -hmm. Well, now, they're tied up with each other. But then here comes these guys doing this, and the, in fact, the greatest persecutors against the Anabaptists were the Protestants, hmm. not the Catholics. Okay, so Zwingli in Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't have any Catholic control at this particular point in time, but they've got the Protestant control. He had these guys arrested. He drowned some of them in hmm. in the river. Oh, you want to you you want to baptize people? Well, let me baptize you, mm-hmm. and you know, tied weights around them and throw them in the river hmm. to to you know to try to right. stamp out the movement because right. it was an offense to him. Hmm. They got as much they got more persecution from the Protestants as they did from the Catholics, which is which is the reason they eventually moved into Germany. They kind of mm-hmm. fled from that um, and and found themselves in Germany. Found for, themselves in Germany, and they got chased yeah. there as well. So they're going to get chased wherever they go. But God's working in this group of people. Mm-hmm. And you can chase them down all you want, but God's going to get, he, he's going to get the word right. out. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, yeah. there are similar groups mm-hmm. in other places in Europe. Within these kinds of movements, mm-hmm. you're always getting uh, persecution. There's always, it looks like Jerusalem, um, you know, in, in the first century when they the people were scattered. Yes. And then they took the doctrines and the beliefs to other places. You're seeing this among the Anabaptists. You're seeing it among the Puritans. You're seeing it among the, you know, the earliest people that would say, we believe what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And they're getting chased out into other places where the, the, the truth of God's word only just spreads there. Right. People are responding to the truth when you Mm -hmm. tell somebody that you can have an individual personal relationship with God through the Bible, and here's one for you in your own language that you can read for yourself. Uh, That's appealing to people. Uh, And uh, and that's what's happening through this Anabaptist type of movement. When we say Anabaptist, we have to understand that's just one more tagline Mm -hmm. on what we would consider independent people who believe God, believe the Bible, and are going to want to live their lives according to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is a good place for us to just say, all right, what were the doctrines that they professed? So maybe you can explain to us, what were the things that they stood upon as a, as a group of people? 
So there's salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for an individual who who places their own personal individual faith in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. apart from an ecclesiastical organization that says mm-hmm. you're 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 Christian because somebody threw your water in your face when you were eight days old. Right. So okay. free agency faith to salvation. Yes, it's an individual decision, mm-hmm. and that baptism comes after that. Mm-hmm. That it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's only for professing believers. Okay. Then there were some other things that were a part of their doctrinal position, basic, core, fundamental things, that the Lord's Supper or communion was a memorial, not a sacrament. So it wasn't the Eucharist. You're not eating Jesus when you partake of this. You're commemorating what he did for you on the the cross of Calvary through the elements that are there. And they would have shared that with most Protestants who would have agreed with that as well. Right. And that the church and the state were to be separate from each other. That's a big one. A huge game changer because, again, for a thousand years, this was the world was operated. The church and the state were the same thing. It was the Christian theocracy, it was the Christian kingdom. And the Protestants carried on that tradition, like we yeah. already said in Geneva. But even yeah. like if we look at uh, much more modern versions of England. They've mm-hmm. got a state religion. You've you've got the Church of England. You've got mm-hmm. Anglicanism and Episcopalianism. The kind of rule in places like that, even even today. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 still there. Mm-hmm. That the the separation of church and state also meant that you wouldn't take up arms. Mm-hmm. That you're pacifist, if you will. That if somebody wanted to, if there's a war going on, you know, our job is to minister the word of God. Yeah. And we work in a different realm. And that they weren't supposed to take oaths. They weren't supposed to swear. That they weren't to vow vows. Vow vows, yeah. yes. Okay, and that was, again, the huge thing in the Catholic Church, that you you give your allegiance to the organization and the institution. That's the, the bondage of Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah, and this point of like vowing vows and, and kind of being sworn, your your allegiance being sworn to the yes. church is probably most easily exemplified in the example of the Crusades. Yeah. Where so much of that was just related to, um, this is my heritage, this is who I am, and if I want to be spiritual, I need to function within my vow to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm bound, inextricably bound to the Catholic Church. Yes. And they're saying, look, we're not into all the vowing of right. vows. Like, right. Like you are a human being and you have free agency and you get to make decisions for yourself. We're not going to keep capture you in our church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your membership is by your choice. And, mm-hmm. and, and to pull it back into the context of, of the Anabaptists specifically, mm-hmm. um, you know, so much is shaped by culture and time frame, right. right? Where you exist within history. So the necessity of the pacifist view was so critical and mm-hmm. so radical in a world so contentious where governments were threatening people and the inquisition is just like was just yesterday right yeah. like yeah. and so to have to have people not unwilling to take up arms and live in light of government and and you know a, a strong sense of nationalism mm-hmm. was really important for the time frame in which they lived yeah uh, and the the, the agenda you know, of the Great Commission, mm-hmm. where today you have a lot of Baptists who don't hold to the same pacifist view uh, as, say, Mennonites do or, or, right. or other or other groups do. And so you have some Baptists that are pacifists, mm-hmm. but then you have some that aren't. And um, and there's, ro- there's room for that. That's the kind mm-hmm. of thing that we're talking about. There's room there uh, f- for people to kind of manifest in a way that 
is according to their own convictions and view of the Bible. Yes. And when you travel outside of your little compound right, of yeah. life yeah. and you get outside of you know, the bubble that, that we all live in uh, and you see God, you see how Jesus transcends everything in life, yeah. no matter where it is that you go. The beauty of going and seeing, you know, um, Africa and Europe and Asia and other places of the world mm-hmm. and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ transcend all of that, yet it's different. Yeah. Shows you where this, how this movement came through history, yeah. how it got crystallized with this group called the Anabaptists who were persecuted by both sides because they were baptizing people and, and saying to the Protestants and to the Catholics that your baptism isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, a stark contrast. Yeah, stark contrast to it. And that's, if you wanted to trace our history, that would be a good place to, to go to. Mm-hmm. Yet it goes further back than sure. that. Sure. This is an important place maybe where we can talk about, you know, the idea that, that we can't, there is no Baptist in the first century. That's, right. not, a, that's not a thing. Right. Um, though there are recognizable things mm-hmm. Uh, about the way that they saw the Great Commission. In fact, the Anabaptists were bent on the idea that they wanted to look like that first century church. Mm-hmm. Like, what were that? What was the early church about? What were the epistles? What, what was contained in the epistles, and how does that inform the way that we live? Which that kind of thinking was was what made them radical. Mm-hmm. But you have these kind of signposts, these light posts throughout history. Something pops up here, pops. It's not. A, it's not a clean line from the first century to today, it's more like God working his word out. It it might be something springs up out of nowhere that's like people are discovering the word of God and and Mm -hmm. they're beginning, or it might be connected to another movement, another body where these ideas spread this way or that way. Um, But it's, it's kind of a, a mixed heritage. It's, you know, it's just like the remnants of the old Testament, Sometimes you don't know where they came from, but they did, the God's word came to them and suddenly they had faith. They had a walk with the Lord. And so <laughs> suddenly you have a faction of Jewish believers who are like, we believe God and we believe his word. And they, they sometimes seem to come out of nowhere. Church history has worked in a very similar exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Because God is active. He doesn't just sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't just you know, sit up in heaven on his throne like this. Right. He's active in people's lives. And so when he sees a group of people someplace that need uh, and want a relationship with him, he's quite capable of inserting himself in there and revealing himself to people and, uh, and inspiring them or directing them or leading them to find a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And to manifest that in their time, in their culture, and their place in such a way that it becomes diverse and different and beautiful in its diversity. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Mason Wilson here. I'm one of the pastors at Harvest Baptist Church in Iola. And I wanted to share with you how Living Faith Bible Institute has been an invaluable tool for my life and ministry. As a young man, I was zealous for the Lord and for His Word. And so I did what anyone would do when I had questions. I turned to the internet. But oftentimes that would leave me with more questions than answers. And so when when I found Living Faith Bible Institute, it was 
a godsend to be able to sit under like-minded pastors and leaders and learn the certainty of the words of truth. Coming from a small church in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, our ability to put on a Bible Institute is very limited. And so when, when we found out that the Living Faith Churches were coming together to form a Bible Institute, we knew this is our opportunity to send our, our budding leaders in for Bible training and for pastoral prep. And finally, I learned so many practical principles for parenting and for marriage that I wouldn't trade for anything. And so for that, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for Living Faith Bible Institute. If that interests you at all, please visit lfbi.org and consider enrolling in classes. One of the really interesting things about the Anabaptists that I've, that I've learned is that they held a form of discipleship. Now, we, mm -hmm. we talk a lot about discipleship today. Yes. Um, and the significance of discipleship in the church has, um, you know, has waned at times and you know it hasn't always been a significant thing that individuals learn the bible for themselves yes. and that they grow and that they, they have their own walk with the lord that they have an intimate relationship with mm -hmm. with jesus christ through his word that hasn't always been um an important thing in every church and in every movement right but the anabaptists hold to this idea of discipleship by name they like that that's a big deal to them mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of in our heritage, too. We make a big deal of that as well. So explain the impact of their discipleship and the way that they train people. Well, the the impact of that is, again, as you mentioned, it's the individual personal relationship with God through the Word of God that you can have. And you're responsible for that for yourself as mm -hmm. much as you can possibly know. Um, we are responsible for what we know, and we're responsible for what we could have found out had we got into the Bible and found it out for mm -hmm. ourselves. And so rather than you come to church because it's the Sunday thing to do, it's Sunday, I live in America, I'm supposed to go to church, okay? Yeah. And I go and I sit there and I listen to, some, you know, right. most people believe that they're pleasing God by giving him the, the privilege and the favor of showing up to this building and listening to somebody talk. And that's the extent of their relationship. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I color e eggs on Easter. I'm a Christian because I put up a tree at, at Christmas time. Right. Uh, th those things are institutional. Yeah. And it's the individual personal relationship with God where I sit down with somebody and I say, here's the Bible. Here's what it says for you. You have one of these as well. This is your yeah. copy, okay? God made you as an individual, unique creation of God. And that's liberating to let somebody know that you don't have to be mashed into this this mold that said, everybody wants to be unique today. Everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be noticed. Everybody wants to be individual. Okay, you got that in Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Okay? Um, but the world wants to conform us to this mold, and church does that sometimes. Mm -hmm. You come, we will, even in the fundamental churches, yeah. We have, okay. a, we have traditions, and we have we cultures, have and we have things we have that we order serve it, which is good. I mean, what God's structured. Yeah. Okay. But we have this thing, and you come, and you just, you come, and you set. Mm -hmm. And that and could be it. throw your money in the plate. Sure. Okay. But as long as you come and sit, and I can count you, and brag to my fellowship guys that I've got all these people in here, and throw money in the plate, so 
then everything's, no, you have an individual personal responsibility. And I say, we keep talking about responsibility. I want to, I want to tweak that a little. We have an individual privilege Mm -hmm. to have a personal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. If, if you had a relationship with the president of the United States where you could just walk into the Oval Office anytime you wanted without security detail, you would think you were pretty somebody pretty special, <laughs> yeah. right? You have that with the God of the universe mm-hmm. where you can walk into his office without security detail anytime you want and have, if you were the only person on earth you still have that individual personal relationship with yeah. God where he's your friend, your brother, your spouse, your father, you're all at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so discipleship is taking that concept and getting an individual to develop that personal relationship with God himself yeah. apart from any institutional bondage. Mm-hmm. And that's game changing. Yeah. Yeah. That is what unleashes the Great Commission. That's what happened early in the book of Acts when the per, when the believers were persecuted and scattered abroad, and some individual guys went into Antioch and said, Hey, let's preach to the to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Where'd they get that from? The Spirit of God said, Hey, uh, why don't you talk to anybody mm-hmm. over there? Where did Philip get the idea to go take the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch? The Spirit mm-hmm. of God said, Hey, yeah, that guy over there. Go, yeah. go talk to him. And that's God active in the lives of individual people to bring them into a personal relationship with him to fulfill the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And discipleship is the key to that yeah. when you talk, when you invest the Word of God in individual people. Yeah, and it put the it put the work of ministry in, in not just the Word of God in the hands of common people, but mm-hmm. it put the work of the ministry in the hands yes. of common people. And so now, it's not just their pastor or bishop that that is responsible for seeing the Word of God spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a you know a missionary or you know a uh, you know someone trained in a monastery. He's responsibility right. to to go and to spread the good news. Uh, wow, I, I have as much responsibility as the person who graduated from a monastic setting or a scholastic setting. I have just as much responsibility as my pastor. I am a missionary right here where I'm at. And if God sends me somewhere else, I'm a missionary there too because he's He's given me the work to do. And that that was an, an incredibly different perspective than the mainline form of Christianity that, that anyone had seen at that time. And so that's exactly. another reason why the Anabaptists stand out to us. Yes. So here's the institution called the Catholic Church, or here's the institution called your church or whatever. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's contained within the walls of that church, the enemy's just fine with that. Yeah, it's well, safe. Well, he's not really, but he it's safe. He'll he put he up can with it. pigeonhole it. He can cat he can he can control it if it stays inside the walls of the church. Mm-hmm. But when it gets in here, yeah, in the lives of the individuals, and then when those individuals leave that building. Mm-hmm. The buildings are necessary and important. Meeting together and all that's important. Okay. But when we leave that building, I like it when some churches have a sign at the top of the back door that says you're now entering the mission field. Mm-hmm. When you leave that and you carry with you that personal relationship with God from the inside, that God loves me, that Jesus loves even me. Even me? Mm-hmm. Me? Who am I? I am nobody. 
And the God of the universe loves me personally enough to come to the here and die on the cross for yeah. our sins. Okay, and yeah. what's that personal individual relation with me? And I can take that out of the institution of the building and spread that out in the neighborhood and the community that I live in. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. And that's the different that's one of the primary differences between the institutional Catholic and Protestant denominational movement even today and the independent Anabaptist-type movement even today Mm -hmm. that takes the gospel out everywhere through discipleship. Yeah, that's good. What are some things that we need to know in closing about the Anabaptists before we move into other steps in the church history story? They were persecuted, obviously. Um, One of of those men died of uh, cancer. Uh, One of them, I think it was Rubley, Wilhelm Rubley, that made it to old age, but most of them died. The three of them were were executed by Zwingli and his group. They were banished from uh, Geneva, so they went to other parts of Switzerland and started churches there. Mm -hmm. And they would chase them down and hunt them down and say, well, you can't preach this. Well, yes, we can because God told us to. Okay, And so eventually they would be captured. drowned in the river um, in parody of their baptism, yet they, when they take that message out to the common people, it spreads like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And so there's more generations of people when you, uh, when you eliminate this person, you got 10 more behind them. Yeah. And they might call themselves something different. They might eventually in time call themselves something different along the way. Uh, But that core fundamental concept of the individual personal relationship with God and individual local churches continues through. Right. And so they get chased to this place and, and they captured there. Then he went over to Germany, as you'd mentioned before, and started some place in Strasbourg. Um, and as it it's it's wildfire, it catches the the enemy is not good enough to stamp all of that out because God right. is moving. Yeah. And when God begins to move like that. Yeah. And then what happens really if we fast forward Mm-hmm. Um, you know, three and a half, four hundred years later, we have the Great Awakening in uh, in America and mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. and that is spearheaded by people whose heritage comes from this way of thinking. Yes, right. That yes, that that way of seeing God's word, that way of understanding a profession of faith, that way of understanding baptism. Is is radicalized in the Great Awakening, and the whole world wakes up to the reality of God's word and, and the calling on their life. Yes, and that movement that that that, that takes a William Carey, for example, mm-hmm. yes. a little guy in a cobble, in a shoe shop mm-hmm. making shoes. Yes. That's impressed personally himself to say I want to I want to go to the world and I want to take this news of Jesus to the world. And he goes to the established churches of his day and they call him crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay? Sit down, young man, when the when when God sees fit to save the heathen who will save them without us and mm-hmm. you know that kind of nonsense and and William Carey had enough individual personal faith and movement of, of God's spirit to say I want to do this yeah and despite all the opposition despite all the persecution he loads his family on a on a boat goes to India and spends 40 years there starting yeah. churches yeah that that's that type of individual personal relationship with God thing is what's spearheaded by all of this. Man. There's a lot to say about this time frame in particular. Mm-hmm. And there are episodes that are going to follow behind this that, mm-hmm. that we'll get to later on. But but this kind of, I wanted to hit the Anabaptist thing because there are so many different views uh, on the Baptist 
you know, heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are, we've got some, you know, Baptist briders that in, in, in some one camp. And then we've got, you know, those are, that's a form of successionism. And then there's right. people who see like a polygenesis view of the Baptists and, and these things spring up. But all of those things, somewhere in between is the answer, as yes, you said earlier. As always. And, um, and what's important to know is that God is always at work mm-hmm. and that um, there are certain character qualities that his people always have. Yes. And, um, and we're thankful for that. And we pray that those things would be true of us as well. Exactly. And the, the fact that God is always at work, he's always at work through his word, and he's always at work through the lives of individual people. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much awesome. for being with us today. Yeah. Appreciate it. And we want to thank you as well, the listener, for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. Um, we hope that you're fascinated by this topic. We, we hope that, that when you listen to this conversation, you think, man, I'd love to learn more about church history and, and uh, about what uh, my heritage of, of faith looks like or, or, or different manifestations of Christianity for good or bad, what that looks like. It's a really interesting topic for me. Uh, you can enroll for the church history class through LFBI. So if you visit LFBI.org, You can see our entire program of study. Also, we want to invite you to consider checking out this book uh, here, Church History by Greg Axe. And this is available on Amazon. It's one of uh, many living faith books that we uh, that we publish through the Bible Institute. But if you want to learn more about church history and learn principles of church history, uh, this is the book that you want. So we invite you to check that out as well. All that said, we love you. We're grateful for you. And we can't wait to be with you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.